Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The Labour Party scored some big London victories in this year's local elections, but only made modest gains elsewhere in England. This is a massive turning point for the Labour Party. From the depths of 2019, we're back on track now for the general election, showing what the change that we've done, the hard change we've done in the last two years, what a difference it has made. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be dissecting the local election results and how bad and good they were for the Tories, Liberal Democrats and Labour. Who should be pleased with their performance in England and who should be worried? Our political editor, George Parker, will discuss with our political correspondent, Jasmine cameron Sleshy, and our northern correspondent, Jen Williams. And we'll also be diving into what these results mean personally for Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. Is the Prime Minister more or less likely to face a leadership challenge now? And will the opposition leader be forced to change tack? Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard will discuss with our Chief Political Commentator Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining the pod. This year's local elections have been described as the midterms for Boris Johnson, a moment for voters to cast their opinions on the state of politics. For the Prime Minister, a test of anger over Partygate. For Keir Starmer, a test of whether voters have moved on from the Jeremy Corbyn era. The results, as of Friday morning, have something for everyone. Labour has done very well in London, making some big council gains, but has failed to make significant progress elsewhere in England. The Tories have suffered losses as expected, but maybe not as significant as some in the party had feared. Oliver Dowden, chair of the Tory party, accepted they did not do well in London, but was eager to point out they did better elsewhere in England. I think these are difficult results in London, but as has been highlighted, it does form part of a a wider trend that's been going on in London for some time. If you take Wandsworth, contrary to what's in your mind or my mind, we think back to the the 1980s. Actually, we've been losing seats in Wandsworth for the past 20 years, and we only won by about 200. Now, it's very disappointing that, of course, that we have uh, lost those seats, but I do think they have to be contextualised with the sort of gains that we're making in many other parts of the country. people's non-eaten sturrocks and so on. Well, Jen Williams, thank you for joining us briefly. What did you make of Labour's performance in this election? I think it's fair to say that it's quite messy. You know, Labour isn't charging forward in these former industrial heartlands by any means, by the looks of it. But that's not to say that there aren't bright points for them. So they won Cumberland, which was up for the first time. And that's a new council that includes a couple of kind of so-called Redwall Tory marginals. You know, in Hartlepool, they obviously there was a there was a big by-election there that the Tories won. They increased their vote share. They held off the Tories in Sunderland, which is a a big campaigning point. Previously, Boris Johnson was there in the days beforehand, and the Tories had kind of talked up the idea that they were going to take the council there. But you know, equally, it isn't a sort of a huge march forward, and I think it does fit with what both Labour and Tory were insiders up here were sort of saying prior to the election, that 
Boris Johnson is a negative point on the doorstep up here, just as he is in other parts of the country, just as he is in Remain areas, but that Labour possibly haven't done enough yet, or maybe they won't do enough to kind of enthusiastically get that vote coming back to them in huge or perhaps in enough numbers. I mean, this was a, this was a Tory in Bolton when I asked him what it was looking like a few days ago. It doesn't take much to get loads of negativity about Boris Johnson and that it was grim on the Bojo front. But equally, you know, you heard sort of similar predictions from Labour that it's going to be harder for us to make major gains in our kind of northern leavey type areas. And in fact, that's sort of broadly what we're seeing. George Parker, welcome back to the pod. You've been up since the early hours of Friday morning as the results came in. Where do you see the lay of the land? Well, I don't think I'd uh, ever disagree with the judgment of Sir John Curtis, the elections expert, who basically said this has been a bad night for Boris Johnson, but not good enough for Keir Starmer. And I think that's a good summary of where we are uh, as we speak, Seb, to be honest, because you're hearing there Keir Starmer calling this a massive turning point I don't think it is a massive turning point. It's certainly been a very good night for Labour in London, a pretty catastrophic night for the Tories in London, for the Labour Party to pick up Barnet, Wandsworth and Westminster. And just to put that in context, there's now a Labour councillor representing Mayfair, the ward where the hedge funds that helped to fund the Conservative Party are based, one of the richest wards in the whole country, is now Labour. But outside the capital, as John Curtis noted, the vote share of the party is actually down a bit, from where the party was in 2018. Now, Keir Starmer would say, well, that was quite a good year for Labour. Theresa May was battling the Brexit crisis at the time. But nevertheless, 2018 was the time when Labour was led by Jeremy Corbyn, someone that Keir Starmer thinks is a, was a complete electoral liability. So, you know, it's not been a fantastic night for the Labour Party outside London. And that gives Boris Johnson the breathing space he needs, to be honest. I think one other point we should make is it's been a good night for the Liberal Democrats. They were making progress in some of their target areas in London, but equally importantly, more widely in the broader south of England, in the southeast and indeed the southwest, a so-called blue wall. And I think that's something that will send jitters down the spines of quite a few Tory MPs in the shires. Jasmine Kamenstashi, it's great to have you back on. Let's begin with London, because that's the real bright spot for Labour in these elections, that they've been doing increasingly well in the capital for really several decades, as Oliver Dowden was talking about at the top there. But they didn't just take Wandsworth, which has, uh, has been widely described, Margaret Thatcher's favourite tax-cutting council, but they've also taken Barnet, and they've also taken Westminster. And that trio really was at the top end of Labour's expectations. You've been out and about a bit in London during the campaign. Why do you think people have abandoned the Tories in the capital? Certainly, we've had a couple of striking results coming in this morning. And I think in some ways it's unsurprising based on some of the things I heard from residents um, when we did our reported piece from Wandsworth. It was really significant that a lot of individuals actually felt quite betrayed by Boris Johnson. They felt angry at his leadership, talking to residents. It wasn't just things like Partygate that came up. There were also concerns over Brexit and its sort of long-term implications. I think there was a real questioning of, of Johnson's sort of credibility as a leader and not just the specifics of, you know, whether, whether he was ambushed by cake or not, but there was a sense of actually we've got 
individuals at the top of government and we don't quite know if we can trust them, not just about parties, but about, you know, whether they can actually tackle the costs of living, whether they can really rise to some of the big challenges that the country is facing. And I think it's quite striking when we look at the demographics of some of these boroughs that actually you've got a lot of young people, a lot of university educated people, a lot of people who voted remain. These places are quite ethnically diverse. And these are all demographics that have in recent years been moving away from the Conservatives and towards Labour. So in some ways, as Oliver Dowden was saying, this is sort of the the continuation of a, of a longer term trend that we're seeing in these councils. But I think certainly the losses of, of these councils is pretty sim- symbolic for the Conservatives. And I think it will have a lot of Conservative councillors and Conservative MPs, particularly in London and the south, in the south of England, sort of getting a little bit anxious. Because one of the things that came up in our conversations is that actually because of the rising costs of living in London, you see people moving further out of the capital, but they're bringing their politics and their values with them. So if you were you know, a resident in inner London, perhaps you're being moved to outer London or just outside the M25, your voting patterns haven't changed. And I think we'll be seeing that in, in elections to come. Well, one person who is delighted by the Wandsworth result is the Labour Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. In 1998, a year after our landslide victory, we didn't win this seat in Wandsworth. In 2002, a year after our landslide victory in 2001, we didn't win this seat in Wandsworth. And we've done it in 2022. And uh, a lot of hard work from great candidates behind me. But actually, uh, local residents here, like in national uh, elections, are fed up with same old, same old. Well, George, Wandsworth, again, as we said, is this kind of very classic Tory part of London. And it is striking that uh, a lot of people have been out campaigning there, said Boris Johnson personally, his personality is what cost the Tory control of that council. Yet it hasn't necessarily been the same elsewhere in England. And it does feel a little bit uneasy, that coalition, because Wandsworth, its demographics have changed, but it does feel like a place that should naturally vote Tory. Yes, and um, if you think that Boris Johnson was the mayor of London uh, right through till 2016, you know, winning elections for the Conservatives across the whole of London. And so when you hear Oliver Dowden saying, oh, well, it's been going on for some time. Well, that's not entirely true. When Boris Johnson was a slightly different kind of politician, as he was when he was mayor of London, appealing to liberal-minded Conservatives, celebrating the diversity of London, calling for amnesties for illegal immigrants, the Conservatives proved that they could win in those seats. And... I think it's a risky strategy for the Conservatives to say, oh, well, it's been happening for a long time in London. We're always likely to lose places like Wandsworth. And then say in the same breath, but we did quite well in Nuneaton and Hartlepool. That seems to me to be quite a risky electoral strategy for the Conservative Party to say, well, we can't win in Mayfair, but we're relying on a load of former Labour voters in working class areas of the North to carry on supporting us at the next election. Now, they may well do that, but I think Boris Johnson will be under a lot of pressure to recalibrate his strategy from Southern MPs who now have the Labour Party or the Liberal Democrats breathing down their neck to refocus his attention on the South and on London. And of course, that has a danger because it means that he might start sounding like he cares a little bit less about those target areas in the North. Well, Jasmine, if we look towards elsewhere in England, it was pretty patchy for the Labour Party. They've made some gains, obviously. Cumberland Council, which is a new unitary authority, that went Labour. And that's an area that has three Conservative MPs who represent it. In Hartlepool, although the Tories have roughly held up where they were, their vote share has declined a bit. So it feels as if it's really a standstill for both parties in a lot of parts of England outside of London, that Labour is not massively 
making gains, which you might think it would when the prime minister has suffered a popularity hit over Partygate and over the cost of living crisis. But at the same time, Keir Starmer's just not really got that momentum yet. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think while Labour officials, we've heard from people like Keir Starmer and Sadiq Khan have sort of, they've praised the success of what's happened in London. The elephant in the room is, as you said, the outside of the capital, they haven't really made those significant gains. And I think there'll be a lot of concern within the Labour camp as to whether Starmer's actually resonating with people. This is a period where we've had We've seen the government in power have numerous sort of negative headlines from Partygate to concerns over cost of living that actually sort of you would assume that Labour would be able to take advantage of that and make some significant progress in it outside of London. But we've not really seen that. Yeah, I think a lot of people in Starmer's camp will be slightly concerned and will have to sort of regroup and think about how they portray the Labour message, how they portray Starmer as a leader to encourage people to turn out and vote. It's not just enough to you know, say to people, the Conservatives are bad and aren't trustworthy. It's about giving people a message and, and something that gets them to the polls and makes you feel as though that Labour is something worth voting for. Now, the other part that is clearly celebrating on Friday morning are the Liberal Democrats who've made gains in Richmond. Again, another traditionally conservative part of London, but also the leafy suburbs. This is what their leader, Ed Davey, was celebrating. It looks like it's going to be an historic night for the Liberal Democrats. We're making big gains from the Conservatives in their heartlands in places like Wimbledon and West Oxfordshire and in places in the north like Stockport. Uh, we took that seat off Labour, uh, as you mentioned, in Hull. Um, and a, a huge vote of confidence, actually, in Liberal Democrat-run councils like Richmond, where uh, there's a complete uh, takeover. There's only one Tory uh, councillor left. Um, and so, you know, uh, this is very positive news. George, I think that one councillor in Richmond, in fact, is someone who served on Richmond Council for 60 years and is actually 91 years old. So if you look for the Tories, even that holding one councillor is not good news. But you've been out and about a lot looking at the Liberal Democrats and how they've done. Would you agree with that, Davey? It's a historic night for them? I don't know if it's a historic night because there simply weren't enough councils up for grabs in Lib Dem target areas, but it's certainly been a good night. And um, I live down in Richmond in West London and just looking at the local results, that 90-year-old Conservative candidate who held onto a seat, I think he might have only held onto a seat because the Liberal Democrats were only fielding two candidates in a three-candidate ward. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredible state of affairs when the Conservative Party struggled to win a single seat in a, an area like Richmond-on-Thames, which had a Tory MP in Zach Goldsmith until quite recently. And then further beyond that, you get into a quite an interesting area where Jasmine and I were doing some reporting on the ground this week in the West Country, where we haven't got the result yet, but Ed Davies said things are looking positive for the Lib Dems taking control of Somerset, which, as you'll recall, was Paddy Ashdown's old stamping ground, but at the heart of an area which used to be very strongly Lib Dem, but has solidly returned Conservative MPs since 2015, all the way down to Land's End in Cornwall. Now, if the Lib Dems can make it re-establish themselves in Somerset, that augurs well for them in the forthcoming Tiverton and Honiton by-election, where the Conservatives are defending a 24,000 majority. And then beyond that, the possibility of another by-election in Somerset and Froome, where the local MP, Tory MP, is in trouble and being investigated over various allegations. So you can see the Lib Dems in the South presenting a sort of second front to Boris Johnson, where he's fighting the Labour Party in London and uh, large areas of the Midlands and the North. 
Well, Jasmine, it's actually not just in the South. The Liberal Democrats are doing well. They've made some gains in Stockport and Hull as well. And I think what's interesting is that the Lib Dems, obviously, they've always had the two flanks to their party. One of those, the West Country George was talking about, where there's a a more natural affinity to them, but in a way that's a kind of anti-establishment vote. And what we've seen in these elections so far is that they're picking up some of the traditional natural Tory vote in Richmond and and around London, but then also some of that anti establishment feeling is returning. And that strikes me as a problem for Boris Johnson, because part of the reason the Tories managed to wipe out the Lib Dems in the South West was getting that vote back in the 2015 election when the Lib Dems had a near total wipeout. And it feels as if, if Ed Davey can paint himself as the insurgent alternative to the Tories in places where Labour are not traditionally popular, that is a quite a big issue. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the, the Lib Dems are in a really interesting position at the moment because we've seen in recent months, they're really gaining momentum. So we had obviously Cheshman Amersham last year. We had North Shropshire. There's a sense that the party is sort of, now we've moved away from the debates over, over Brexit and second referendum. The party's sort of regaining its identity and trying to position itself in the political landscape. And I do think as a whole, the Lib Dems benefit from there being a less polarising Labour leader, because speaking to Lib Dem officials, some have said, well, actually, in the 2019 election, there were some people who were sort of umming and ahhing between the three leaders, but overall put off and quite afraid of the figure of Corbyn. And so it would have naturally given their votes to Conservatives. And I don't think those sort of factors play out anymore. And I do think we had a bit of this last week where we saw party chairman Oliver Dowden, who wrote this letter to Starmer over concerns that there was some sort of informal Labour Lib Dem pact about the number of candidates that were being stood in each election. And I think that this issue will sort of become, I think it will be more talked about in in the coming months, because obviously there are key areas that the Lib Dems are able to tap into that Labour can't and vice versa. And I think how the two parties interact and how they sort of choose to position themselves as an anti-Johnson force, I think will be quite interesting in the coming months and years ahead. Well, George, let's just step back and look at the overall picture. And as, it, as we're recording this, the results have just come in that Maidstone Council is lost for the Conservatives. And again, that this seems to be the big theme here, that the Conservatives have lost control of councils that naturally should be theirs. And I think when you throw this forward to the next election, which is obviously going to, we still think is going to be in two years' time, although there's been a bit of muttering this week, the Prime Minister might be tempted to go early. I'm not sure there's any basis for that or why he would want to do that, um, given that these results don't show he's particularly strong. But where does this set the dynamic, the political dynamic for the next couple of months? Because it's not been that decisive moment for Johnson's leadership. But and there is obviously a lot more coming in terms of the party gate scandal and the cost of living crisis. And um, but it feels as if it's probably shored up the Tories for now. But it does suggest there are going to be bigger structural issues for them in the years and probably the next decade ahead. Yes, I agree with you. I, I don't think you would look at the results of these elections and think, great, let's have an early general election when inflation's heading towards 10% and unemployment's going up and we're facing a recession. Not sure that would be the ideal time to have a snap general election for Boris Johnson. But it's given, I think these results do give him a bit of breathing space. There was quite a successful bit of expectation management by the Tories before these elections. They've managed to present this as being, and somehow not being quite as bad as some people feared, although I think it's worse than some people in the Tory party feared in London. But I think what you'll see now, and you mentioned the Maidstone result, you've got a whole load of Tory MPs now in the home counties in London, in the southwest, knocking on Boris Johnson's door and saying, what's in it for our constituents? And when there's still, you know, a question mark about whether the levelling up agenda is going to deliver for all those new Tory voters in the Midlands and the North, 
uh, to put it mildly, plus the fact the government's run out of money, it's going to face some really agonising political choices over the next few months. And, you know, reflecting the fact that the Conservative Party now represents two very different kinds of voters. You were talking there about the Lib Dems having different kinds of voters. It's even a bigger issue for the Conservative Party with a sort of bedrock of support in the South and the Southeast and a whole load of Red Wall constituents they have to try to satisfy in the North as well. So it's a very difficult balancing act for a Prime Minister who is, as you say, still quite weak because of all the various scandals still hanging over him. And now, Jasmine, I'm going to ask you both to give us a grade on where you see Labour's performance in these elections. Um, I've been texting various people in the Shadow Cabinet and Kosi Yastama on Friday morning to get their sense. And they seem happy but not complacent, which is probably where they want to be right now. I think I was going to give Labour a solid B for their election performance there. Where we, If you were pushed, what grade would you give them? I would probably say a B minus just in the sense that at this point in the election cycle, you would hope that actually that sort of the personal figure of Starmer, he would appeal to people a lot more. It's been interesting that when I've been on the road and doing Vox Pops, I mean, people are still calling him Keith Starmer in terms of his brand and what he stands for. I think a lot of people are still confused. And I think the party still has a long way to go when it comes to convincing the public that they're worth voting for. And George, what's your grade for Labour? I think I'll go a little bit lower than Jasmine. I think I'll go for C+. But while we're speaking, we haven't had any results from Scotland and there's a possibility or indeed a probability that Labour will overtake the Conservatives as the main anti-SNP unionist party in Scotland. So that would be a good result for Keir Starmer. Also, we expect Labour to do very well in Wales. So I'm speaking before we've seen all the results. But I still think the overarching thing is that, you know, given the headwinds that the Conservative Party is battling at the moment, whether it's on the economy or party gate, or a series of sexual scandals that are going on, the constant speculation about, about Boris Johnson's future. You have to think that a Labour leader should be doing better than Keir Starmer in a set of elections like this outside of London. To be going backwards from where Jeremy Corbyn was in 2018, it's not great. So look, I agree with Jasmine. Keir Starmer, I think he would accept, has not sealed the deal with, with the voters at the moment. People still bit unsure about what he stands for, aren't particularly excited by what he says. So I think he's got a few questions to answer as well as the ones that are obviously facing Boris Johnson. George and Jasmine, thank you very much. This segment was recorded before Durham Police announced they would reopen an investigation into Sir Keir Starmer over the so-called Beergate affair, which will obviously have an impact on his political standing. These local election results were seen as a test not just for their parties, but for Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer personally. For the Prime Minister, his party was looking to see whether the Partygate scandal has damaged him amongst different parts of the electorate, and for Keir Starmer, whether he has managed to bring the party back from its historic defeat in the 2019 election. Now, the results really had something for everyone on this front, but Justin Greening, the former Education Secretary, summed up what it will mean looking towards the next general election. Clearly, after that, the dog days of Jeremy Corbyn, Labour is further back even perhaps than, than they realise. So that rebuild is going to take time. But in a sense, I think we're sort of slightly in an era of none of the above at the, at the moment. So it is all to play for for the next election. The Conservatives will be able to win if they're able to build that broad coalition. 
Robert Shimsley, it's great to have you back on the podcast as always. Now, in the past couple of weeks and months, as the party gate and cost of living scandals have built up, everybody was saying that these local elections were going to be the make or break point for Boris Johnson. Do you think they have been? Well, they've certainly not broken him. I think that's absolutely clear. If people were hoping, the people who hoped that the local elections would deliver a knockout blow to Boris Johnson look likely to be severely disappointed uh, based on what we know so far. It's been an ordinary midterm bad night for the Conservatives, not an exceptionally bad night. And therefore, you have to say that with intense focus on the Partygate scandal, with the economy heading downwards, and maybe people are only just beginning to feel the worst of it, and there's more to come, you'd have to say that Boris Johnson would be feeling much more secure and quite relieved after these elections. Jim Picard, what do you reckon about where this leaves the Prime Minister? Because the results, as we were talking in the first segment, are not dire for the Conservatives, but they're not great as well. And the fact is the party is obviously 12 years into power, and this is when the drag of government starts to hit you there. But what does it tell us about the Prime Minister's personal standing? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing you need to remember for listeners is that normally at this point in the electoral cycle, the opposition party has pulled ahead of the governing party in municipal town halls, certainly if they're about to get into power. So in the run-up to 1979, the Conservatives were already the largest party in local government. In the mid-90s, Labour had overtaken the Tories. And ahead of Cameron becoming Prime Minister in 2010, again, the Conservatives were the biggest party in local government. You need to know that there are still something like 5,000 Labour councillors and something like 7,000 Conservative councillors so there's a mountain to climb, even to get to the point where you would feel like Labour is basically on the brink of power. That's not what it feels like at the moment. And on Boris Johnson, it really feels to me that if 54 Conservative MPs were going to get their act together to trigger a, a leadership contest or a vote of confidence in the Prime Minister, the time to have done it was possibly January or February, when Partygate was something that was making people very emotionally engaged, and a lot of people very angry. I think we're past that point in terms of how the public feel about it. Even if some people it's dented their view of Boris Johnson permanently, they're not quite so steamingly hot under the collar as they were a couple of months ago. We have, of course, since then also had the invasion of Ukraine, which has put things into perspective for a lot of voters and certainly for a lot of MPs. And you know that that moment has gone. I think he's safe. And if you if you look at the betting odds, I think back in January you could get something like four to one on Boris Johnson making it through to 2024 as, as leader and beyond. And now that's more like evens. I think that the gamblers have realised that the political sands have most definitely shifted. And you know, there'll still be voices speaking out against him, the kind of Steve Bakers of this world. But there are people sort of hoping Jeremy Hunt will come forward and do some kind of withering critique today that that isn't going to happen. Those people who do want him gone don't particularly agree with who should replace him. I think he's safe. Now, Ed Davey, who has made some significant gains in these local elections, was saying on the radio this morning that part of the reason is the Prime Minister's character. The real situation here is the economy is in a real mess. The Conservatives have failed to provide that leadership and people are turning to the Liberal Democrats for an alternative party. You know, I talked to a lot of voters over this campaign and the dissatisfaction amongst lifelong Conservatives with the Prime Minister was really palpable. They don't think he's a decent man. 
Well, Robert, this is an interesting question because many conservative campaigners in these elections have been branding themselves local conservatives. And this is not a new strategy. They always try and separate themselves, what's going on in their local council versus the Westminster picture. But it feels like it's been more potent and obvious at this time. So in a way, they're trying to not make it about Boris Johnson. Yeah, and I think that's that's a really important point about these elections because, as you say, there comes a point in the life of most leaders where they become a drag on their party. A very good leading indicator of that is when their candidates don't start featuring them on their leaflets, don't push the fact that they're the same party as Boris Johnson or whoever. That tells you that they don't think the leader is an advantage in their election. And that's a really important moment in the cycle of politics because it does mark the beginning of the down cycle. And I think it's important to distinguish between saying, which both Jim and I have said, that we think Boris Johnson's a lot safer after tonight, and saying that he's still an electoral advantage to the Conservative Party. The fact is, they don't see other people coming forward who they feel confident would give them a better chance. They also look at Keir Starmer, I'm sure we'll come on to in a minute, and say, we don't see a country enthused by the idea of Keir Starmer as Prime Minister, we think it's safe to gamble on with Boris Johnson. But that doesn't mean they actually think he's an advantage to them anymore. And it also means that uh, the one thing you have to bear in mind with him is that you're always waiting for the next shoe to drop, the next crisis. And there are still pinch points coming for him. We've still got more of the party gate inquiries to unravel. We've got a couple of by-elections, neither of which look fantastically attractive to the Conservative Party. And we've got the economy. So the truth is, things are still looking difficult for the Conservative Party. They just don't see a better option at the moment. But Jim, let's flip this on to Keir Starmer. The May 2021 local elections were pretty bad for Labour and it came at the time of the Hartlepool by-election where the party lost that seat for the first time. And so this was always going to be better. But the census on Friday morning is that maybe he's not done as well as potentially he could have. Yeah, I think it depends on on sort of what measure you're measuring Keir Starmer by. If you're saying, has he stabilised the ship? and uh, basically turned things around from where the party was back in 2019 when they had that disastrous general election and Boris Johnson emerged with a majority of 80. Has he stabilised things? Yes. And as you point out, Seb, I think the Labour Party lost about 330 seats last year. It was during the vaccine bounce, if you remember that. But you know, we are not talking about a large tally of gains. And we're talking about the Green Party and Lib Dems making quite a few gains as well. Sorry for the drilling sound downstairs. I have builders in my house. And so for Keir Starmer, the other question is, is he doing enough to actually be on track to win the next general election? And you have to say, they really ought to be more worried than they're sounding because that sense of change in the air, that sense that when you go out door knocking or you go in town centres and you talk to people, are they excited and are they engaged? By Keir Starmer personally, and by the Labour Party and what it represents and what it could offer as a policy platform. And they have put out a fair number of policy announcements that seem to have kind of come and gone without people really noticing them. The answer to that question is, well, no. So it almost, almost feels like they're basically just waiting for Boris Johnson to fail and become so unpopular that the voters kick him out, which is one way of doing it, but it's not inevitable that that will happen. I suppose the argument in favour of that potentially happening, I I was chatting to a sophologist who was saying to me that even though there's not a major pull factor for Keir Starmer and Labour, one sort of ray of hope they do have is that if there are Conservative voters who are unhappy, and we know there are an awful lot of voters who are unhappy, whether it's over Partygate or still unhappy about Brexit, if you have a polarising figure like Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of the opposition, they will still grudgingly probably come out and vote these these unhappy Tories. 
if you have someone who seems pretty anodyne but not threatening, like Keir Starmer, then you might just sit on your hands. And in 1997, as Robert has reminded me on several occasions, there were 2 million Conservative voters who sat on their hands and didn't vote, and which is one of the reasons why Tony Blair won such a big landslide. Robert, it feels to me as if there is a question about whether sort of we're being quite harsh on Keir Starmer here, because first of all, Labour was coming from such a low base in 2019 and has had to do so much to try and change the party over the past couple of years. And as listeners will be bored of me saying, you know, I've written about this in the book about the fact that the Red Wall thing is a structural change. It's a big way in how Brexit has reshaped how England votes here. And asking him to be back to where Labour was pre-Corbyn or in a different era in one night might seem a bit much. And I think James Johnson, uh, Theresa May's former poster, has been saying on Twitter on Friday morning that Labour is doing well. It's not doing well enough to get a Blair-style landslide, but that's not maybe what Keir Starmer is realistically ever going to get. Labour's doing okay, but the point is, as you said, there was a structural shift. And what we're seeing is that the leave voting areas that switched from Labour to the Conservative Party are not significantly showing a tendency to switch back. They're making gains, and these are going to be the hardest parts to win back. They're making progress, but they're not making progress fast. And that's the key point. The electoral challenge in terms of the next general election for Labour is already very, very difficult. It's a huge majority that's got to be overturned. And they're simply not making progress at the speed they would need to be doing. You don't sense enthusiasm for for Keir Starmer uh, in the country. Boris Johnson's had a terrible six months. And yet, you know, although the Conservative Party are losing ground, Labour is not surfing a wave of enthusiasm. I think where they can draw some comfort, they can look at parts of the South, and as you know, as, as we're recording, we're waiting for it all, they can look at parts of the South where the Conservative vote is weakening, and the Lib Dem progress, while obviously primarily good news for the Lib Dems, is also good news for Labour, because it needs the Lib Dems to take some of those Tory seats from the Conservatives. There are reasons for Conservative nerves in the southern parts of the country, which many of them remain parts of the country, but the fact is, Progress is slow. And and the real problem for Keir Starmer is he's still trying to do an awful lot of reform to his own party. He's trying to drag Labour in a particular direction to accept certain policy positions to align it with the priorities of the voters he needs to win back. And to do that, you need the momentum and the sense that you are leading your party to victory that comes from winning things, winning elections. And he is not getting that big burst of momentum so far from what we're seeing out of these elections. There are things to look at. Maybe and when we get the Scottish results, we'll see a bit of a pushback there, a bit of a fight over there. But the truth is he's not getting that burst of momentum that gives him credibility, that makes voters pay more attention to him. And there is an inevitable sheen that comes from looking like a winner, or at least looking like a challenger. And it gives you confidence, it gives you authority. It's a virtuous circle. And what I see with Keir Starmer is he is making ground. He was a long way back. There are definite things to point to and say progress. But if we're talking about the cycle of the next general election, he just doesn't feel like he's moving fast enough. Well, Jim, there's obviously going to be a push from certain figures in Labour to change the party more because there's obviously Twitter has been full of left-wing supporters of Jeremy Corbyn this morning discussing this trend and topic that I think we'll be talking about quite a lot in the run-up to the next election, which is Long Corbyn. And this is a, obviously a play on Long Covid and a phrase that many of those advising the leader talk about. And they're 
essential logic is that getting beyond the Jeremy Corbyn years is going to take a long time and there's going to still be a long drag on the party's reputation. Do you think that's a real thing? And if so, how can Starmer get away from it? Is it simply about making sure Jeremy Corbyn doesn't come back to the party, kicking out more MPs or changing its policies? Or is it going to be inevitable that plays at the next general? This is the kind of techie bit you need to understand to understand this set of local elections, which is that you have to compare it with the 2018 base. And therefore, what Labour is saying is that although it doesn't look like they've done great in the red wall, the so-called red wall, there are sort of signs of optimism. For example, Sunderland, people expected Labour to lose control there, and they actually hung on. And so even though, as John Curtis accurately points out, Labour's actually gone backwards ever so slightly as of earlier on Friday, they've gone backwards outside of London and England compared to 2018. That can still mean that they've done better than 2019 when Boris Johnson rampaged across the electoral landscape. And actually, it does mean they are pointing to quite a few red wall seats that they said if you had the same results you had on Friday, you would win back at least 16 red wall seats. So Copeland, Carlisle, Great Grimsby, Lee, Hartlepool, and many others. So that's just one point to bear in mind when we assess whether Labour's done well or not. I think, you know, you can argue forever and a day about whether the Corbyn influence is still, still weighing over why certain voters don't, don't back Labour anymore. But I think it's broader than that. I think this is the post-Brexit landscape where a lot of people are voting more on cultural issues than on economic self-interest issues, which is why you have people in Mayfair now having a Labour council and people in Hartlepool having Conservative representation. It's because those post-Brexit wasn't just about the EU, as we've often said on this podcast before, it was about sort of how you see the world and whether you're inverted commas progressive or inverted commas small c conservative. And, you know, Jeremy Corbyn was a kind of extreme manifestation of of urban liberal left-wing views. But you know, you get rid of Corbyn and you're still left with a Labour Party that is all about professionals who are concerned about the environment and who are pro-immigration. And and a lot of traditional Labour voters, as we know, didn't share those views. So you can, you can the party is still not necessarily aligned in cultural terms with the votes of Hartlepool. They just are trying to convince them that in economic terms, they would do much more for them than a Conservative Party funded by property companies and by hedge funds. <laughs> but let's, let's see what happens there. People who switch votes, switch sides in general elections, people who switched from Labour to the Conservative Party don't want to have been wrong. They want to have made the right decision. So they're not looking for for reasons to change their mind. They're, if anything, looking for reasons why they did the right thing. So although we, you know, who spend our lives looking at the minutiae of politics, we look at they've got this wrong, they've got that wrong. If you're a voter who has made the emotional lurch from Labour to the Conservative Party, it isn't a small thing that you've done, and it's not a small thing to say you were wrong. So they will bear with the government for as long as they feel they can. And and what I think we're seeing, particularly in the Brexit areas, is that people still feel able to bear with the government. And finally, Robert, I just wanted to ask you, where does this leave both leaders' momentum at the moment? Because I think this was a test for Boris Johnson. And it feels like at a bare minimum, he sort of passed it, is in that the night was not so bad that the cause for him to resign or face a leadership challenge are not there, certainly not on Friday morning. And for Keir Starmer, it feels like he will continue much as it was. So it really feels the net outcome to the standing of both leaders is pretty neutral um, based on the results we know so far. Broadly, I think 
probably Boris Johnson is, is going to feel fairly chipper if things stay as they are. I think he's going to feel he's got he's got past the fine for Partygate. He's now got past the local elections, which people said were going to be decisive. Clearly, they're not going to be decisive. And so, although there are lots and lots of things down the path which are also problematic, I think he's going to feel fairly good. And he's going to be able to come back to his parliamentary party and say, see, I'm not the problem you think I am. Stick with me. I'm still a winner. And I think he'll feel he'll feel better than Keir Starmer even, even though he's had losses and Keir Starmer has had gains. For Starmer, I think basically we're looking, as you said, at, at a fairly neutral result. He's got other things coming. The Wakefield by-elections is something that he will be very hopeful of. And as, as we've been discussing, these aren't bad elections. You know, they're good. They're just not great. And I think... He's entrenched. I don't think he's going to be challenged. I think he can push on, but he's going to have fights still. Boris Johnson will feel probably a little bit emboldened. And Fanny, last word to you, Jim Biffley. I think the last the last reminder here, just, just to emphasise, is that the cost of living crisis is only in its infancy. It has a very long way to go. The big increase in bills, even though the energy cap was lifted in April, it's the autumn and the winter when people spend more money on their energy bills, which unless Rishi Sunak comes up with something massive before October... We're going to see an awful lot more on that issue politically. Well, Jim and Robert, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then you could please subscribe. You know where to find us or the usual places you receive your podcast to get episodes every Saturday morning. And while you're there, you could leave us a positive review and a nice rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Harry Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.